right. How's everyone doing? Swell. All right. Not yet overwhelmed. It's more than I can say. Okay. Uh, so I, I think we will. We are not scheduled uh, on the official syllabus to have another session on the origin of the work of art. I think it's hopeless. I think we will have to have another session on the origin of the work of art. We're definitely not going to get through the third lecture today. We probably won't get all the way through the second lecture today. So next time we will continue with the origin of the work of art instead of going on to the question concerning technology. Um, uh, but that's okay. I think it's. I think I, there's some chance we will make progress. As of about 10 minutes ago, I felt like I understood something. So I'll, I'll see if I can say it clearly. Uh, okay. Uh, other administrative issues, things that you guys need clear. Yes, please. Do you plan on holding um, like, uh, class on before Thanksgiving? Oh, oh, oh. let's see. We're Wednesday. Wow, great question. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, that's a real four to six on the day before Thanksgiving. Wow, I hadn't thought about it. Do I say that we are going to hold it on the syllabus? I do. Wow. Okay. Uh, I need to th think about that because uh, I'm sure it messes with all your plans in addition to mine. I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> uh, uh, so I don't know. I'll have to think about it. It's, but thanks for bringing it up. Uh, what I, my initial inclination is to, to reschedule that class, to have it some other time than 4 to 6 the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, with all these people, that might be, it might be hard to find a good time. But that's my initial inclination. So but I'll try to think about that as the time approaches. But if I forget, some, somebody please remind me. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, will tr I think we will probably, good point, try to reschedule. Uh, the Wednesday the class on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Good. Other devastating administrative issues? <laughs> no. Okay. Just the devastating substantive ones. All right. So I want to remind you uh, very briefly where we got to last time. We had some questions on the table. We are really going to dive in uh, this time. Last time I think I think I ended by saying, well, we haven't talked much about the origin of the work of art, but I want you to notice that. Uh, although there has been lots of discussion, I'm sort of referring vaguely to this discussion that some of you may know about, uh, about the Van Gogh painting. Uh, there's a long tradition of, of discussion about Heidegger's use of the Van Gogh painting of the peasant shoes. Although there's been this long discussion, I ended last time saying, uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think that's the central, you know, a central, uh, a central example in the, in the essay. Uh, and I gave you some, I read some passage where uh, he said something like, we've been led, you know, this, this has led us astray, but it was a necessary detour. Okay, so, um, uh, so that's where we left off last time. Just to remind you, we had the distinction last time between different styles that, a cultures, that cultures can have, and we had the question, how a style could get set, especially if they're unified styles. In some sense, Heidegger thinks the styles set in the various cultures in the history of the West are unified. Uh, and the question is, how do, how do these styles get set? Especially if they're characterized by their unity, it would seem odd that they, um, 
that they just progress randomly. There must be some instigating factor. Um, what is it? And I proposed that Heidegger's project in The Origin of the Work of Art is to show that it's works of art that are characterized by their capacity, very roughly speaking, we'll do it in more technical detail later, to open up a world for a culture, to gather and focus the practices of the culture so that the people in the culture can see what it makes sense to do and so that they can see that everyone else in the culture sees what it makes sense to do. Okay, that's the idea, the basic idea that a work of, that's, that's what a work of art is. That's what it is for something to be a work of art. Uh, and that it's works of art that open up ways, open up and hold open ways of understanding what it is for anything to be anything. And I mentioned at the end last time that it's important uh, that Heidegger takes as his paradigmatic example not something like a representational work of art, like the Van Gogh painting, but a work of art that couldn't in any way be considered to be representational, namely the Greek temple. The Greek temple, and not just the Greek temple as we now see it when we go and visit ruins in Greece, but the Greek temple as it was when a whole culture was, had its practices organized around the presence of the Greek temple uh, at the center of the at the center of the city. Uh, so, when it, so a work of art is most a work of art in this sense when it's working, when it's organizing the practices of the people. That's the very rough, that's the very rough idea. And you'll remember this uh, passage on, let's see, it's, I say it's on page 41. I, I wonder if I, is it possible for me to go back and forth between these pages? I haven't really thought about trying. Uh, Page 41 is just after the section that starts the work and truth. So it's your page 40. Um, at the bottom of your 40 and my 41, does anyone else have this old? Okay, so I'm not, oh, some others have, okay. Yeah, we're just going to have to figure it out. We'll have to go back and forth there. Quite close. I guess the new edition is about a page behind in general, the old edition. I'm, I'm going to work from the old edition mostly. So I'll just read this passage. This is, this is his first um, presentation of the Greek temple. He says, a building, a Greek temple, portrays nothing. R right before that he said, let's deliberately select a work that cannot be ranked as representational art. So you might have thought representational art was the paradigmatic kind. You might have thought if you know anything about these great um, debates in the history of art that the point of art was to represent things and represent them well. Huge battles from the 15th century on about whether painting or sculpture did this better. And so, but he says, no, look, art, when it's really art, isn't representational at all. A building, a Greek temple, and, and furthermore, he says, that's the, the reason people have made this mistake is that they have a bad understanding of what truth is. They think that truth is a matter of corresponding to the way things are, and that pictures can accurately portray things insofar as they're similar, more or less similar to things. So this notion of a true image uh, as an image that represents accurately the way things are has in the back of, uh, of it, sort of as a presupposition, a bad understanding of what truth is. Heidegger thinks. 
And that's important. That gets, well, I was going to say explained, but I, I, I should say, I suppose, at least discussed a lot in, in the third essay. So a building, a Greek temple, portrays nothing. It simply stands there in the middle of the rock-cleft valley. The building encloses the figure of the god and in this concealment lets it stand out into the holy precinct through the open portico. By means of the temple, the God is present in the temple. This presence of the God is in itself the extension and delimitation of the precinct as a holy precinct. This tight connection between the temple and the God that it encloses is, may, may, will end up being important for us because in some ways... The role that works of art play for Heidegger is very much consonant with the role that he thinks gods play. They open up a world. They make it possible for people to understand the way things are. And uh, some of the examples that I want to use later are, are going to be examples that are meant to demystify this. It's not a mystical claim. The temple and its precinct, however, do not fade away into the indefinite. How could they? The, the point of the temple is that it's standing there brilliantly in the rock cleft and it organizes what everyone is up to. It is the temple work that first fits together and at the same time gathers around itself the unity of those paths and relations in which birth and death, disaster and blessing, victory and disgrace, endurance and decline acquire the shape of destiny for human being. Wow. Right? That's a lot. <laughs> That's what it does, qua work of art, right? It organizes what counts as a birth and a death, what counts as a disaster and a blessing, what counts as a victory and a disgrace, an endurance and a decline. And it organizes everything that has everything to do with what it is to be a human being. The all-governing expanse of this open relational context is the world of this historical people. Only from and in this expanse does the nation first return to itself for the fulfillment of its vocation. Very roughly speaking, the temple tells you what you're about. Right? When you live in and are part of the culture that's organized by the religious practices that take place in and through the holy precinct of the Greek temple, then the temple is what tells you what you're about. It tells you what's important in your life. It tells you what counts as good things and bad things, things to be uh, avoided and things to be embraced. It tells you what your possibilities are. It tells you all the things that you need to know in order to, now I'm going to use a phrase that Heidegger uses, but I'm going to use it advisedly as he does, in order to make decisions about what you ought to be doing in your life. Making decisions, Heidegger says every once in a while, but he, he, he just thinks it's so obvious that he hardly needs to say it. Making decisions is never a matter, or very rarely a matter, certainly not in the most fundamental cases a matter, of sitting back and cogitating, making sort of, um, you know, two columns, the plus and minus, and going through and doing a little sort of calculation. It's never that kind of thing. It's being drawn immediately to act in the way that you do in, your daily, in the daily course of your events. That's what it is that gets organized by the Greek temple, and that's what it is that helps you understand what your possibilities are and what you're up to when you live in a culture that's organized around this Greek temple. Okay, that's the, that's the very first example of a work of art. Uh, I mean, the par not the very first, but the paradigmatic example of a, wor of a work of art. Now, so our, our goal 
really. Let me see if I want to tell you our goal first. Yes, I might as well just tell you our goal. Um, the goal for today is this. Um, Heidegger says, as I mentioned last time, that the first lecture where he ends up discussing the Van Gogh painting is a detour, uh, but it's a necessary detour. It's an important... And so we want to know two things. We want to know what is the detour and why is it necessary? What do we learn from it? And what is it and what do we learn from it? Why do we have to go through it in order to understand what Heidegger intends to be telling us when he talks about the way the Greek temple is the paradigmatic kind of work of art? That's the, that's the crucial question. Um, before I, I, I'm going to give you a preview of the answer, but before I do that, I want to I say something else. I think the fact that he thinks it's important to go through this detour is in a certain way, characteristic of Heidegger's, of the way Heidegger thinks. And it's interesting to notice this. So the reason, so roughly speaking, the reason he thinks it's important to go through the detour is because he thinks that by seeing what's wrong with all the possible traditional ways of understanding what an artwork is, and we'll go through some of them, and he as he does in the first lecture, by seeing what's wrong with each of them, and even by seeing what's wrong with a new one that's sort of indicated by what's wrong with each of them, but isn't in the end sufficient, we'll learn something important about, we'll get what, he's, what sometimes gets called a leading clue to what's important, what's really genuinely important about artworks. And it'll direct the rest of, the rest of our project. So Heidegger t very sort of typically thinks that it helps an awful lot to go through the history and see what's gone wrong in the history. And if you see it in the right way, then it helps you understand how to go forward in the, in the current circumstance. Now, so this happens in the very particular case of artworks here. But I want to point out that it happens in the much more general case for Heidegger, too, of the study of the history of being. And that's important for us because the point of the seminar, what we're hoping to do by the end of the seminar, is to get some sense for what the predicament is in the current technological age, the understanding of being that we've got. We want to get some sense of what our current predicament is and what the way forward is. And that's what Heidegger, what's, what's our way out of this predicament? And that's what Heidegger, th Heidegger thinks you may, can make some headway on that project, but only by going through the entire history of being and understanding something important about what happens in the history of being. And I'll, I'll just give you, so this is like a preview of a preview. We're on a, <laughs> just so you know where we are. I, I want to, this is to show that the historical discursus that he goes through in the first lecture is characteristic of a way he thinks it's appropriate to approach philosophical problems in general, namely to go by way of historical discursus. Our course is going to do that in general over the course of the semester, and this and this studying this particular lecture today will do this. Let me just give you a very brief sense, a preview of the rest of the course, what the what the historical discursus is going to tell us. You don't have to take the rip. But <laughs> you know, a preview, right? Just so you get some sense of where we're heading. So this is, so this is, I think, what Heidegger's sort of big, late, later Heidegger's big project is. He says, 
look, what we need to do is we need to look at the history of being. First, we need to discover, to notice, that there is such a thing as the history of being, that uh, being and beings are not the same as one another, and that the way we understand what it is for anything to be anything at all is by having a background understanding of being that's present to us in this background way, right? present to us in a withdrawn way. The background social practices are not what we're focused on, they're what allow us in a particular understanding of being to make sense of the world in the way we do. Okay, so first we need to look at the history of being. Notice that there are these different understandings of being in different epochs. When we notice that, we'll notice something, we'll, we'll notice something very important because the central characteristic of the current technological understanding of being, he thinks, Heidegger thinks, the central characteristic is that we experience our understanding of what there is, the fundamental understanding of what there is as resources that are not themselves intrinsically meaningful, that could be used for some enormous range, maybe indefinite range of things, that we see that current understanding of what there is as inevitable. It seems to us to be necessary. I was thinking about it this morning. You see it, um, you see it uh, in, in all sorts of places, but I've, since I'm teaching the philosophy of mind course, one of the places you see it is in functionalism, in the philosophy of mind. What matters is not what's playing the function of X when you're giving a functionalist account of what's actually playing the function. What matters is that the function is being performed, right? And anything that performs the function will do because it's just a resource that's characterized by its ability to perform that function. So it's not intrinsically meaningful. It's not, it's not got some sort of fundamental meaningful characterization built into it. It's just, it's just meaningful in terms of the function that it performs. It seems so almost obviously true, and I suppose that if you went through, if you, you could understand, you know, sort of every academic, disc academic discourse often, when it's trying to characterize human, say, societies, often will have this kind of functionalist tent, structuralism in anthropology, for instance, or the economic account of us as, you know, sort of people who perform certain kind of labor for, for a certain kind of remuneration, or, and so on and so forth. The understanding of us as resources seems not only pervasive and not only as an understanding that does enormously useful work for us, maybe, in, in a lot of circumstances, but as almost inevitable, as necessary, as now we finally got it right. And Heidegger thinks that's the real danger. The real danger of the current technological age is that we take the understanding of being that we've got as one that's inevitable. As in Hegel's terminology, the one that history has finally led us to. The end of history, the one that's finally gotten it right. And that's the real danger, Heidegger says. But taking a page from Holderlin, actually taking a passage from Holderlin, he says, wherein lies the danger, there lies the saving power also. So some, that's an important passage from Holderlin that we'll study later in the course. And Heidegger's characterization of what it means is something we'll study later in the course. And let me tell you very briefly what it means. It means this, that although it's dangerous to understand the current understanding of being as completely inevitable and necessary, 
Although it's incredibly dangerous because it leads to this kind of nihilism, leads to this view of nothing as having any intrinsic meaning at all and everything being replaceable with everything else and there not being any reason to do anything and prefer any uh, course of action over any other course of action. Incredibly dangerous. Nevertheless, there's a saving possibility that lies in that because this understanding of being is distinct from every other understanding of being in a very important way that's related to this. Namely, we're the first epoch in the history of being, according to Heidegger, that doesn't experience our understanding of being as given to us from some source. We don't experience our understanding of being as given to us from the Judeo-Christian God. We don't experience our understanding of being as given to us from the pantheon of Greek gods. We don't understand, uh, we don't experience our understanding of being as given to us from anything, but in particular, not from any particular individual entity. That allows us, he thinks, for the first time in the history of the West, to understand the possibility of the distinction between entities and being. Because being, for the first time, isn't an entity. It's not. It's the source of intelligibility, but it's not an entity that plays that role. It's not an entity that plays the role of the source of intelligibility. And so, this is a, I know this is a preview and it's, a, it's going pretty quickly. I just want to give you the picture, though. And so, if we can experience, if we can come to experience our understanding of being as, although it's not given to us by an entity, nevertheless as not necessary, but given. This is an important distinction from, for Heidegger. It's the understanding of being that we have isn't necessary, rather it's given. And we're supposed to come to understand that by studying the history of being. We're supposed to come to understand that the understanding of being we've got isn't necessary. It comes about as a result of these different transformations in the history of being. And the one that we've got now is just the current manifestation. And that's all it is. And there can be other manifestations. The current one isn't necessary. If we could come to understand that, then we'd have two things. We'd have both that the understanding of being is given to us from something outside of us, and that the outside of us that's giving it isn't a thing. And that's what Heidegger thinks is the possibility for our salvation. The possibility for our salvation is recognizing, he thinks, that our way of understanding what it is to be anything at all is something given from outside, but not by any particular entity, rather by the practices. Once you understand that, you understand what the constraints are on changing understandings of being, but also that it's possible to do it. Yes? And where does his own understanding of being fit into this equation? Well, that it's, it's, if, if our understanding of being isn't necessary, how does he account for his account? Good. So he hasn't got an understanding of being. What he's got is a history of being. So he's got a history of the various understandings of being that tells us something about what being is. It's not So understanding of being is a technical term. It means something like uh, the way it's already built into our practices that we understand how anything counts as anything at all. 
uh, and the way it's already built into our practices, in particular that we understand what counts as norms for behavior and so on and so forth. This kind of background understanding that we've got. Heidegger has that just as a regular old you know, person living in the 20, in Germany, living in a culture, living anywhere, right? Um, so he's got an understanding of being, but that's not what's special about him. What's special about him, qua thinker or qua philosopher, is he's telling us what being is, and in particular that it's the kind of thing that's got a history, and he's telling us something about how transitions in that history can get made. He's telling us something about the way in which the current understanding of being is not a necessary one, but one given to us. The, so that's not an understanding of being, but something like his, um, his uh, account of what being is. Yeah. Okay, so that's... Um, so, so he thinks that, in other words, the special thing about our current technological understanding of being is that it's going to allow us to have, if we can get out of it in the right way, a non-ontotheological understanding of being. An understanding of being that doesn't think that the source of all intelligibility comes from a single entity. And so fails to understand the distinction between what entities are and what it is that makes any entity intelligible as anything. Okay, that's a, that's a preview. Um, uh, I, I, why don't I stop for a moment? Just it, yeah, yeah, Adam. I have a quick question. Yeah. So, um, this outline you give of his methodology, not just in the Van Gogh example, but also in the study of the history of being. Um, I was wondering how sympathetic or critical should we be when we start to understand these detours? Should we sort of go into them, trying to understand the best we can? I mean, the danger is that you fall into the traps of that particular being or that yeah. particular example. What should we do with a critical eye? Well, I mean, you should try to do both. You should try to understand what it is that motivates it. I mean, so, some of this, I, I confess, when uh, one of the reasons it's hard to read Heidegger is because he presupposes so much understanding on the part of his reader about philosophical history. And not necessarily understanding uh, that, you know, we can all be expected to have. He was deeply steeped in... Uh, medieval philosophy, he was deeply steeped in Greek philosophy, and he takes it as a sort of background datum that all his students are going to be able to read Greek and Latin, they're going to recognize the things that he's quoting, he does a sort of shorthand. And so part of my job is going to be to spell some of that out, um, and some of, the, some of the markers are harder to see than, than others. But, uh, but you should try to understand what he's talking about, but Really, the audience he's thinking of is an audience that will recognize immediately the sort of picture that he's giving of the Aristotelian view, say, or of the Platonic view, or of the empiricist view, which are the three views that he goes through here. Uh, and then we'll find sort of reasonably compelling the kind of rejection that he gives of each of them. If, if you find yourself, this is one of the reasons it is hard, if you find yourself struggling even to understand the view that you know he's about to reject, um, uh, try to understand it, but yeah, well, I mean, that's, so that's the, the position to find yourself in. Try to understand it. Try to be as sympathetic a reader as you can. Uh, try to understand what it is the position, what the position that he's laying out is and why it might be compelling. And then try to see if from the point of that position you can come up with reasons to resist, say, the criticisms that he gives of it. But, but mostly what we're going to do here is uh, 
go quickly over the criticisms and try to see what position they motivate, the positive position that, that they motivate. But I know, I know the feeling. I, the first time, the first two years I spent reading Being in Time, I spent a huge amount of time trying to translate the stupid Greek passages. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. In a certain way, it doesn't matter what the Greek passages are because, um, the, because, well, I mean, it does. It does matter what the Greek passages are. But, but for the first reading, it may not be the most important thing. Yeah. Yes. So um, but this is something that gets mentioned, I noticed, in I think the epilogue here. Uh, let's see if I can find No, I guess in the addendum. Page 86 of my book, the second to last page of the addendum. He makes brief reference to something that touches on the problem of the ontological difference. The ontological... Maybe I'll put it on the board just so we have all the terminology around. The ontological difference is Heidegger's name for the thing that he thinks he's discovered. If he, you know, this is one of the things that he hopes he'll go down in history for. And the ontological difference is, on Heidegger's account, the difference between being and beings. The difference between entities and what it is in virtue of which entities are intelligible as anything at all. In the whole history of the West, Heidegger says, nobody's noticed that there's a difference between these things. Why not? Well, because in every epoch in the history of the West, since, since Plato, uh, there's been a notion of what it is in virtue of which anything gets to be intelligible as anything at all. But it's always itself an entity the form of the good in Plato, the Judeo-Christian God, and so on. So, and Heidegger wants to say, yes, there's room for the notion that there's something it is in virtue of which entities come to be intelligible as anything at all. But what it is in virtue of which they come to be intelligible as anything at all isn't itself another entity. It's not God, it's not the form of the good, it's not something, in fact, that you could look at at all, or focus on at all, or take as an object of thought at all. Because it's these background practices that when they're making things intelligible are essentially in the background. That's the, that's the crucial thing. If they weren't in the background, if the background practices weren't withdrawing, uh, if, 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 they weren't with, if your understanding of them wasn't withdrawing, wasn't something that you're not focused on, then uh, they could never do their job. So, yes? I'm wondering what is the... What does an ontotheological understanding of being look like? Because it seems like in that an understanding of being involves a sort of withdrawing, that distinction isn't even really possible. Like it, that seems like more of an account of being. Well, good. So there's. I think this is an important issue. There are two things that are going on. One is. Um, sort of what the background understanding of being is in a particular culture. That's the stuff that stays in the background, that directs your activity, that makes anything seem intelligible in any context at all. Then there's something like the theoretical characterization of that in the culture. Every attempt to give that a theoretical characterization 
in the history of the West has decided that the thing that makes these entities intelligible is itself another entity. Uh, and so there's a distinction, you're right, there's a distinction between the understanding of being, which is necessarily in the background, on the one hand, and the theoretical account of being uh, as a particular kind of entity on the other. Uh, and it, there may be a relation between them. So for instance, um, you know, it's hard to imagine that you could live in the Middle Ages in a culture that understands everything as uh, created by God. And so that background fact directs how you interact with anything at all, right? The things that are in the house of God, you have to interact with, with greater veneration than other things, but veneration in general is a particular sort of background um, notion that directs your... It's hard to imagine how you could have that background understanding of being without, at least implicitly, and for the most part explicitly, thinking of it as an understanding that's given to you by God. I mean, it's, so, so the theoretical understanding needn't be a philosopher's account. It could just be the folk account. So, I mean, like, for instance, the way we, are, in our folk account, might well understand everything as resources. Uh, that's a, you know, you might not have come up with that yourself, but when I say it, it doesn't sound so crazy. So, too, I, in the medieval ages, if someone said, oh, and by the way, there is a God, a creator God, who created all this stuff, it wouldn't be surprising to you. So the theoretical account makes sense in the context of the understanding of being. And it may even be held to a greater or lesser degree in the folk understanding, in the folk accounts. But really, that's what he's sort of looking at as having the potential to change, is the, the theoretical, theoretical... No, what he really thinks needs to change, what, what he thinks does change from epic to epic in the very first instance is the background understanding. And it's the work of art that, that can do that. Does that make sense? Afterwards... Yeah. Afterwards, the theoretical account, you'll get a new theoretical account, but it'll be based on the new background understanding. It seems like we have less agency over the way in which the understanding of being... Very important fact. That's right. We have less agency, so we don't just decide. You don't get to change an understanding of being just be, by deciding there's a new one. So how you change it involves changing the practices. The practices, since they're organized around works of art, will change only in certain ways and in certain circumstances. So yeah, that's, and that's exactly the kind of story that he's interested in telling. In general, it's worth pointing out, he's very much against the idea um, that, we, that we're in control of everything. But the idea that we're in control of everything is so basic to the current technological understanding that it's hard to get that, right? It's hard to, under, it's hard to really feel that in your bones. He's and it's especially hard to feel it in your bones without thinking it's some kind of mysticism. And it's really not meant to be any kind of mysticism. He thinks if, you're, if you pay attention in the right way, you'll notice, even though you've been covering it up all the time, because basically we think our, of ourselves as controlling resources. Uh, but if you pay attention in the right way, you'll notice that there are episodes even in our own lives where we experience things as, we experience our actions as being drawn out of us rather than us being in control of them. So the notion that we could come to experience our understanding of being as something given to us, it's, it's going to take a work of art or, or a thinker or a poet or something, something fundamental like that 
to bring about the sea change uh, that will make that make it possible for everyone to see that clearly. He thinks. Uh, but once it's seen clearly, we'll be at an advantage over all the other epochs in the history of the West because we won't be tempted to think that what's given to us is given by a source, is given by another entity, like a god or something like that. That's okay. So that's the that's the preview of what we're going to see for the rest of the for the rest of the course. And you can see then how this idea that you go through the history in order to free yourself from the current background sort of presuppositions that you've automatically got in virtue of living in the culture is an important tactic for him. Okay, good. We're done on that detour. That detour? Now to the principal detour. <laughs> uh, so our, our question for today was supposed to be, what is the detour of the first lecture and why is it necessary? Why do we have to go through this detour of understanding what the various bad ways of thinking about artworks are? And in particular, why do we have to go through this detour of thinking about the Van Gogh painting? What do we learn from that? Okay, now let me give you a preview of the answer to that. Because um, we may not get to all the details. Uh, the way things are going. Okay, so here's the preview of the answer. The detour that he goes through in the first lecture involves discovering a new way to think about artworks in their relation to equipment. That much should be clear. Okay. Um, the hylomorphic view, the Aristotelian view, which is the third view that he spends the most time on, has got something right about it because Aristotle did try to characterize both things and artworks in terms of their relation to equipment. Heidegger thinks there's something right about that. He spends the most time on that. Um, so it's, but ultimately the Aristotelian view is wrong too. Ultimately, the first pass characterization that he gives of the relation between artworks and equipment by thinking about a particular artwork that presents some equipment, a pair of peasant shoes, right? ultimately that first pass isn't gonna turn out to be right either. In a phrase, it's, well, I'll leave, I'll leave the phrase out, never mind. Um, we'll see why. It turns out not to be right either, but it gives us a clue about how to proceed, and here's the clue. This is important for me. Maybe it will seem trivial to you guys, but I think it, I think it opens something up. The clue has to do with the way in which equipment is reliable. We talked a little bit about the reliability of equipment last time. The reliability consists in or is related to the fact that equipment withdraws when you're using it skillfully. Reliability is not a term that Heidegger's used before this, before this, um, this essay, as far as I know. It certainly doesn't come up in his characterization of equipment in Being in Time. What does come up in Being in Time is the idea that equipment is characterized by the fact that it withdraws when you're using it skillfully. But this notion that in virtue of the fact that it withdraws when you're using it skillfully, it's reliable. And other phrases like, let me see if I can find one real quickly. Um, in virtue of this reliability, it offers a certain kind of security to the peasant, to the peasant woman. Right? When the shoes are working as they're working, in fact, as they're supposed to be working, I think it's page 34 for me, maybe it's 33 for you. Um, uh, 
um, for the reliability of the equipment first gives to the simple world its security and does this other thing to the earth, assures the, uh, to the earth the freedom of its steady thrust. So the reliability has something to do with security. And you get the basic idea. If your equipment was all, always breaking down, then you would feel anxious. I mean, there would be something wrong with the way you were experiencing the world, right? You would be discombobulated and discomforted in a way that would throw you sort of off your game completely, right? So we don't usually think about the fact that equipment, that the reliability of equipment gives us a certain kind of security. But it seems right. That's, that's what it does. And in a world that's got, you know, a small range of equipment, as long as the stuff's reliable, it's working well, that means it's withdrawing and you're using it transparently when you're skillfully coping with it, then things are right with the world, as we say. Okay. So the relation between reliability and security um, is a notion that hasn't shown hasn't shown up before. Reliability hasn't shown up, and in particular, its relation to security hasn't shown up. When we get to the discussion, I think that's a clue. When we get to the discussion of works of art in the second lecture, and especially in the discussion of the Greek temple, the important facts about the Greek temple have to do with these peculiar notions that uh, you may have puzzled over. So it turns out that uh, artworks, what artworks do is they open a clearing in which the struggle between earth and world can take place. Okay. Well, so there's, there's a bunch of words in there that you, we probably don't know anything about. World, we've, we've talked about world. We have some sense that the world is the background understanding of the set of possibilities that are open to you in virtue of which you can go forward in one way or another in this sort of advised way, make decisions about how to proceed. Decisions, again, wrong, it's not calculation, but sort of go, go ahead, go forth in, in the world. Okay, the, he says in here, the paths that are open possibilities for you. So we've heard of world, um, but earth is a new notion here. We don't know what an earth is, and we, and we don't know what the struggle between earth and world is. This is a very bizarre notion. And it's clear that in order to understand what he thinks the Greek temple is doing, you've got to understand what earth is, and you've got to understand what world is, if it's any different from the world that we understand, and you've got to understand why, what the struggle between them is, and how that helps for people to understand what they're up to in a particular culture. Okay, that's all that is crucial. All those are puzzles that need to be solved. And the thing that I think is interesting is that if you look at the um, characterizations of Earth, one of the things Earth does is, he says, uh, it's a sheltering agent. Let me see, I'll find this uh, passage. How funny. Probably on 55. Oh, 41 is the other place. Okay, good. Yeah. Let's, oh, or my 42, maybe. Yes, my 42. Uh, in, uh, in the thing, at the bottom of my 42. So your 41, is that where? Yes, at the bottom of your 41. It's almost exactly a page shot. Uh, so he says, in the things that arise, earth is present as the sheltering agent. Okay. So whatever earth is, it does this sort of sheltering. It gives 
a certain kind of security. Now, since we've understood that there's a relationship between reliability and security in equipment, I think that we're going to get some purchase on the notion of Earth, especially in the context in which it does this sheltering, plays the sheltering role, uh, if we think about what the relation is between Earth and equipment. And so that's why I think the detour is necessary. Because only once you understand what it is in virtue of which the equipment is reliable and therefore offers security to someone who uses it, will you understand this more basic way in which every artwork has a component that makes the people who are living in its presence feel secure. And just to give you a sort of one last preview, the answer is, I think, what the, the thing that's important about the relationship between equipment and earth is that, in some sense, both of them withdraw. They withdraw in different ways, and that's why it's crucial that uh, you make the step out of the story based on equipment to the story based on earth. Uh, but the, to say they withdraw is to say, they become so much a part of your understanding of what's going on that it's on the basis of them that you go forward. So it's so much a part of the peasant woman's understanding of what she's about that she's going to go out in the fields and, and, um, you know, and work them, say, that uh, it just doesn't even occur to her that she's putting on her shoes. That's just something that in the reliable, normal context she does without even thinking about it. And the fact that it goes reliably is what gives security to her world. Artworks are supposed to do something to the practices that makes them operate in this withdrawn background way so that they can stand as ground for us and give us security. They can be the sheltering agent. The difference, and we'll, we'll get to this in more detail, is that whereas equipment simply withdraws, artworks rise up as withdrawing, or he says, rise up as self-closing. Self-closing, I think, he sometimes says self-concealing. They hide themselves, right? They rise up as self-concealing. That's something very different. They rise up. That means, think of the Greek temple. Think of his description of the Greek temple. It shines. It stands out. It does all sorts of things that make people notice it. Right? And that's part of what it is to be the Greek temple working. That's part of what it is to be a work, for it to be a work of art working. It stands out so that it can organize your practices. Like, I think, and this is why I hadn't noticed this before either, um, I think that Heidegger had an early version of this in Being in Time when he noticed that there was a distinction between equipment and signs. We talked about signs last time, the turn signal or the stop sign, and so on. Heidegger says in Being in Time, the thing about signs is they're not like equipment. Equipment, in order to work well, has to, has to withdraw. Signs, in order to work well, have to stand out. You have to notice them. If you don't notice the stop sign, you don't stop. Right? And signs are things that organize our behavior. They organize our activities. Not in quite the way that the works of art do, 
But there's this interesting similarity between the fact that signs in order to work have to stand out and works of art in order to work have to rise up. They have to shine. They have to stand forth. Okay. And I think only once you understand both the way in which withdrawing gives you a sense of security and the fact that, as in the case of the shoes, uh, and also the fact that works of art, although they withdraw in some way, in some other way don't withdraw, they stand out, will you be able to understand what the earthly aspect of the Greek temple is? Um, now, I mentioned... Yeah, Anton. Yeah. Right, I'm just, uh, just a simple question about artworks. Okay. Um, we're talking about you know, what artworks do, but do we, is everything that does that also an artwork? Or would that be too strong a claim to read it? Well, everything that does that might be art. So art is the origin of the work of art, he says. And art is this very general thing in the, very, in the last uh, um, lecture, the last part of, of the essay. Art turns out to be tied up with language, tied up with uh, poesy or poetry or some... These are different words in German. It's not obvious to me that he uses them systematically. Uh, but anyhow, that uh, art is whatever it is that opens up and gathers a world uh, and allows for a set of practices to um, be preserved by a culture that's organized around it. So art could be, he's got a list. Um, I take it this list on page... My 62, maybe your 61. Wouldn't that be amazing? My paragraph begins, One Essential Way. 60. Aha, okay, right. Well, we're, we're deviating further and further. Okay, so... Um, one essential way, he says, in which truth establishes itself. Art, art is truth establishing itself. Who am I talking to? Oh, yeah, Anton. Uh, art is truth establishing itself, right? And one essential way in which truth establishes itself in uh, beings, uh, in beings it is opened up, is truth setting itself to work. But there are others. Truth setting itself to work. That's what happens in an artwork. But there are others. Another way in which truth occurs is the act that founds a political state. I take it he's got in mind something like uh, Solon giving laws to the Greeks in the 6th century. Maybe, um, uh, so, I mean, he probably doesn't have this in mind, but maybe we can have in mind something like the American Constitution or the signing of the, the, signing of the Declaration of Independence or something like that. The, the act that founds a political state that gives you the sense of what you're up to, that it's the background understanding of what counts as, gives you the background understanding of what counts as anything important at all in any way. Still another way in which truth comes to shine forth is the nearness of that which is not simply a being, but the being that is most of all. I take it that's a reference to the Judeo-Christian God. He is the ens realissimus. He's the, the being that is, that's the, that's the name for the Judeo-Christian God, the being that is most of all. Um, still another way in which truth grounds itself is the essential sacrifice. Not sure, but I guess that might be something like Christ's, uh, Christ on the cross. 
understood as an essential sacrifice that sets up a world that gives people uh, who understand themselves in terms of it a whole understanding of what it is to be anything at all. Um, still another way in which truth becomes uh, is the thinker's questioning, which, as the thinking of being, names being in its question-worthiness. That's him saying, and me, I'm one. Hey. <laughs> I think he's, uh, I think he's, in, he's sort of running for, he's running for big deal art uh, sort of work, um, or truth setting itself to work. Uh, by, okay, so th- th- that's a list. Notice, he does have this sort of interesting thing to say. By contrast, science is not an original happening of truth. It's not truth setting itself to work but always the cultivation of a domain of truth already opened, specifically by apprehending and confirming that which shows itself to be possibly and necessarily correct within that field. I think what he's got here in mind is what Kuhn will come to call normal science. Normal science is operating within a research paradigm and doing what sort of automatically counts and is expected to count as you know, work that furthers your your um, furthers the project, right? But it doesn't set up a whole new way of understanding what what anything is. It's normal science, right? It's just sort of going on the way things are. You're making progress within a certain understanding of you know what there is. But you could only make that progress if you'd already had this background understanding. Now he does say, and then he says this. I think this is really him. Um, sort of uh, being out cooning coon or sort of pre-cooning coon or something. When and insofar as science passes beyond correctness and goes on to a truth, notice he says a truth. He doesn't mean truth. Truth is something that's got a history here. Um, And science can uh, establish a new truth. When it does that, which means it, it arrives at the essential disclosure of what is as such. It is philosophy. So I take it, this is what Kuhn will come to call revolutionary science. When Galileo, or maybe Newton, or someone like that, really does this kind of revolutionary work, or maybe Einstein, revolutionary work that changes everyone's understanding of what they're up to, of what the world is, right? in virtue of this uh, new way of thinking about what we're studying when we study science, that's, well, that's, a th- that's what a thinker does. That's philosophy. Yeah? How does that relate to his understanding then of technology? So science and technology are not the same thing. Uh, so uh, how does it relate to his understanding of technology? Technology, the way he thinks, well, let me think about it for a second. It's a good question. Um, It's a hard question because technology technology refers to a lot of different things. It, in one way of talking about it, it refers to the current understanding of being, the technological understanding of being. Right. So in that sense, if you think of if that's what you're asking about, then the current understand technological understanding of being is related to science maybe in the sense that um, it's a sort of background understanding of the culture that science will tell us anything about what anything there is to know about what is and uh, the current technological understanding of being tells us that sort of roughly what it's going to 
what science is going to tell us is about is what roles things play, right? These completely interchangeable roles that don't have any intrinsic meaning to them. So you could, so I mean, that's one way of thinking about the relation between them. Um, but technology has a his, itself has a history um, that he but then talks how about. How does that not? How does that final sentence not make technology possible, like a possibility? And so far as the science passes beyond correctness and goes on to a truth, and then you said that yeah, well, you're good. A history. So yes. How does that, I would think of that sentence as referring to perhaps technology as our current like understanding of the world or our epoch, that that would be like pointing at that. Good. So I think what he'll think, it's an interesting question, I think what he'll think is that there's some science, sort of revolutionary scientific act that made it possible for us, that opened up a truth, maybe in the late 19th century or late 18th century or something. What's that? Like industrialism? Yeah, like this sort of the industrial age or something that opened up a truth, but not just the industrial age, but the sort of the scientific, um, the way of thinking about what science is up to that made it clear that when you're being a scientist, you're trying to make progress on technological problems for the sake of um, you know, helping society, say. You know, Edison's understanding, say, of science or something like that. I'm not quite, I'm sort of making this up now, so I'm not sure exactly how to, how to, how to do it. But some, I, so I don't know exactly what the answer is, but, but the form of the answer is something like, there will have been a revolution in science that will have made it possible for us to understand, to have the current technological understanding of being. That's the, I think that's the way to say it. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, but this this is in answer. We're still in answer to Anton. I think uh, is that right? We, 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 these are all the different ways. This is art. These are all the different ways that truth can set itself to work. Quick sequel, maybe. Yeah. But then, uh, if we accept things like the Declaration of Independence, yeah, things like that, do we then also have to accept that there are negative counterparts like the questions of war? Um, or is there, is there some way of working? Yeah, possibly. I mean, sure. Yeah. The, uh, anything that... Um, uh, so if we're talking about the act, the, the act that founds a political state, um, uh, I mean, yeah, you could imagine a state like our state, the United States, founded in an act of uh, the declaration that amounts to a declaration of war, the Declaration of Independence. So, um, yeah, so you... I mean, I... Yeah, I think as long as it's an act or, um, that opens up a way for people to understand what it is that they're about as a people, then it'll be doing this work. Now, maybe what maybe what you're worried about, Anton, is that um, you know there's sort of there doesn't seem to be an ethical component to it. I mean, uh, and I you know I mean I think. In a, in a way, that's one of the criticisms. That's the Levinasian criticism of Heidegger. Uh, many people have criticized Heidegger for this. You might, you, I mean, there, are, you might worry about that. I think at this point, what he, what he'll say is, uh, no, of course, whenever you open up uh, a world and a whole way of understanding what it is to be us and what it is to be anything at all. There will be a notion of the way one ought to act in that world, which will have ethical overtones. Now, 
it, we, we, then, there's, then there's the question, which a Hegelian, you, you might worry, a Hegelian might be able to answer this. Charles Taylor, for instance, who's a Hegelian, I think through and through in a certain way, though influenced by Heidegger also, he has Hegelian intuitions, thinks he can answer this. He can say, uh, yeah, it's true, there are different understandings of what counts as ethical acts in different you know, epochs in the history of the world, but you've got a kind of ethical supersession story that you can tell that says, you know, our notion of what counts as ethical trumps a notion of what counts as ethical in this other society. And it's hard to figure out which trumps which, and it involves dialogue and all sorts of things like that. And it's not obvious that Heidegger will have that open to him. And that's a, that's a potential concern. Yeah. Yes? Uh, as I we've got the, the paradigmatic example of, of art is the Greek temple. Yeah. In this list of uh, in this list of sort of ways of having getting truth to establish itself, uh, the rest of them seem to be acts. Like the, uh -huh. And you sort of, you've got uh, acts of revolutionary science, you've got acts of you know, the essential sacrifice. So I guess one, is there a meaningful difference between like objects of art and, and sort of performances of art? Or, and then, since they seem to be, at least in the list we've created so far, so weighted towards the performances, is the Greek temple then not actually as paradigmatic as we had thought? Okay. I think you're on to something very important. Um, uh, and it's that, let me see if I can rephrase it. Uh, uh, so, uh, I'll say... No, it's not that the Greek temple isn't as important as we thought it was. The Greek temple is every bit as important as we thought it was. It's just that we may have to think a little differently about what the Greek temple is. The Greek temple isn't a building. One of the things that we learn uh, in, the, in the first lecture, sort of by going through these different ways of thinking about the relation between an artwork and its thingly element, is that whatever an artwork is, it's not a thing. And in particular, the Greek temple isn't, a, isn't qua Greek temple a building. Now, of course, it's built out of something. Uh, of course, it's got, you know, sort of materials that, that in some sense or another make it up. But the way to understand those materials, the way to understand what he calls the thingly elements in the Greek temple, insofar as it's a work of art, isn't in terms of the material that's, it ma that makes it up, but in terms of something else, namely this component of earth. Uh, and it's got a very different structure to it. It's not a substance. Uh, it's not a manifold of sensations or something that could give, you know, give rise to sensations. It's not any of the traditional things in virtue of which you might have thought you could understand what it is for something to be a thing. Insofar as the Greek temple is a work of art that's working, it's like an event. In fact, it's like a sort of long, it's, it, he, he has this word, it's, it's happening, right? Or the Greek, the work of art is working. Truth is happening. What that means is that the Greek temple is um, gathering practices of the pe the practices of the people in the culture who live in its light. It's a way that he, he'll talk. Um, 
And the people in acting in the light of the Greek temple are preserving the truth that's happening in the in this work of art. So the Greek so it's very important I think you're really onto something. Very important to resist the idea that we could understand what a work of art is by thinking about what it's made of. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons, another reason why the Van Gogh painting is a detour. It's uh, even easier to imagine that what makes the Van Gogh painting a work of art is that, well, it's paint on a canvas that represents, you know, the way things are. Uh, but it's not paint on a canvas. Well, I mean, it is in some trivial sense, but that's not the relevant feature that it has if you're asking about what makes it a work of art. It's a work of art. The Van Gogh painting is a work of art, but it's a work of art of a derivative sort. And we don't understand it properly until we understand the more fundamental sort, what the, work, what the Greek temple is. So it's a very important question. I think you're, you're right. And the answer, just for short, is, yeah, all of those other things are events or happenings, but so is the work of art. Yeah. Yeah. So material in a work of art, does it play a functional role? Uh, no, that's not the way to think about it, according to Heidegger. Okay. Yeah. Because it seems, if, if what's essential about the Greek temple is not that it's made out of marble and has this certain shape, yeah. then it seems like the things that go into making the temple, the physical materials, start to sell like equipment, right? Uh-huh, um, yeah. And I was wondering if that was problematic. Well, okay, good. I, I think... Um, I, we'll, just, maybe, we'll, we'll just jump around. <laughs> I think... Um, Here's what, here's what Heidegger says about the material in the, in the Greek temple. It does all of this amazing stuff. Uh, so let me see if I can find it. So, um, is it all the way back there? Wow, okay. So, yes, okay, good. Um, so it does all this amazing stuff that couldn't be done by anything but it. And so couldn't be done by anything but... I mean, what's really important is not that it's got material that plays some functional role that could be played by something else. What's really important is that it's it in this very context, in this very situation, doing what it does. And here's what it does, reading on from where we read before. Standing there, the building rests on the rocky ground. This resting of the work draws up out of the rock the mystery of that rock's clumsy yet spontaneous support. So what he's doing now, this is very, it seems sort of poetic passages. What he's trying to do is to give you a sense for the role that the Greek temple plays for the people who live in its light. And the role that it plays, of course, is that it helps them understand what it is for anything to be anything at all. And here's the way he thinks they understand it. Um, uh, so it draws up the work, the temple, draws up out of the rock the mystery of that rock's clumsy yet spontaneous support. They experience the temple as sort of amazingly sort of sitting there on the rocky cleft not falling over, being solid, despite the fact that it's a clumsy support, and so on. Okay, so standing there, the building holds its ground against the storm 
raging above. And so first makes the storm itself manifest in its violence. So it's in virtue of the Greek temple that you understand what a storm is. It's in virtue of the Greek temple that you understand what a rocky cleft is. Um, uh, the luster and gleam of the stone, though itself apparently glowing only by the grace of the sun, yet first brings to light the light of the day, the breadth of the sky, the darkness of the, of the night. All of these notions are understood in terms of the way the Greek temple makes sense of them. So the materials, I mean the very particular materials, turn out to be crucial. Uh, so they're most what they are when they are involved in this. Yes. So, and, and this also distinguishes it then from the Van Gogh painting, right? Because they go painting can only make shoes what they are maybe that's exactly it but the 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 Greek temple when you put something next to it makes it fully what it is that's exactly it and that's one of the senses in which the Greek temple shines it's a very important thing about it it stands out and it makes everything understandable in its light it rises up and in the context of the Greek temple you understand what the storm is. In the context of the Greek temple you understand what stone is, what the first light of day is, what sky is, what darkness is. Uh, I mean it goes on and on and on. And in particular, this is a, an interesting fact about it, it turns out that all of these on Heidegger's view, ways of understanding anything that is in the context of the Greek temple, have share something. They all share something. So now remember, he takes himself here to be describing what, what the work of art did for the people who were living in its light. That's what he takes himself to be describing. And the people who lived in its light were, you know, say, the people of 5th century Athens, 6th century Athens, or pre-Socratic. Okay. So, and he goes on. Uh, so you get all these things. The temple's firm towering makes visible the invisible space of air. It contrasts with the surge of surf. Its own repose brings out the raging of the sea. Tree and grass, eagle and bull, snake and cricket, first enter into their distinctive shapes and thus come to appear as what they are in the light and in the context of the Greek temple. And what's supposed to be common to all of these descriptions of everything that is is that the people experience, who experienced the world and what is in the light of the Greek temple experienced everything that is as rising up, lingering for a while in the light of the temple, and then, and then passing away. And so he goes on to say, the Greeks early called this emerging and rising in itself and in all things, phusis. Okay? That's the pre-Socratic, the Greek understanding of everything that is, Fusis, and he takes himself in this passage, it's one of the few places where he actually sort of making a particular claim about history. We have to make most of them on his behalf. But here he's saying, look, it's because people understood everything that is in the light of the Greek temple, which organized their practices and played the particular role that it did in their culture of bringing them together and understanding themselves and everything that is. Um, it's because of that that the pre-Socratics came to think that uh, what it is for something to be is for it to rise up, stay around for a while, and then pass away. And Phusis is the very first name for being, according to Heidegger. Um, okay, and that's the, okay, so that's, so yeah, exactly. So that's the, um, so it's not, it's definitely not that the material is playing a functional role. Far from it. It's playing the most particular role it could possibly play. Yeah. Uh, so, just to 
stop me if this is yes. not relevant. Um, but so this is, is this perhaps why he thinks that artwork is impossible in the technological age? Uh, because um, in the technological age, now that we have this understanding of being, is everything to this, as a functional item, but necessarily a functional item, so that we can't, so it's always quay something, right? Yeah. Uh, so that when, if there were to be a work of art, it would have to simply appear as itself, but since it always and necessarily appears as something else, I think that's probably important. Yeah, I think that's probably important. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a nice that's a nice connection to make. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, there was one other thing that I was going to say about that. Uh, oh, okay, right. So, well, let me just say this. So notice that um, in this description of what the Greek temple's doing, it's allowing everything to show up in this particular way as something like the storms, like the crickets, like the snakes, and so on, that shows up for a while in the light of the temple, say maybe in the region of the temple or around the temple, maybe as a threat to the temple, or maybe as something brought into the temple. It allows everything that is to be understood as something that shows up for a while, lingers, and then goes away. And there's going to be, although we have to figure out exactly what it is, some description of the temple in terms of the struggle between its earthly and worldly aspects that's going to make that understanding of being clear. Whatever that characterization is, it's going to be different for the temple than it is for the Bamberg Cathedral, uh, which was a work of art working in the Middle Ages, or for any other, any other putative work of art that's showing what it is to be anything in any context. So we'll, we'll, keep, that in, we'll keep that in mind. Okay. Oh, what, so... Let's see what the best way to do this is. Let me go briefly through the criticism uh, of the traditional views that Heidegger gives in the first lecture, ending with the story about the about the Van Gogh painting. A lot of a lot of what I want to say is on the table already, but let me go through the let me go through it in a little bit more detail. Um, Heidegger identifies three accounts of what it is to be a thing in the first lecture. Three sort of historical, philosophical accounts of what it is to be a thing. And the idea is something like this. Look, what a, we want to know what a work of art is, right? That's our goal. We want to know what a work of art is and what its origin is, how it comes to be the kind of thing that it is. Uh, so if we want to know what a work of art is, we should at least think about trying to characterize it in relation to what other things are. And in order to embark on that project, we've got to have an understanding of what it is for something to be a thing. Well, lo and behold, there are a lot of characterizations of what it is to be a thing in the history of philosophy. So let's go through them very quickly, he says, and see if they're going to be helpful. So the first one that he talks about on my pages 22 to 25 is a characterization of a thing as a bearer of traits. Uh, 
one typical Greek, especially Greek, translated into Latin, Roman Latin kind of characterization of a thing, a substance with properties. Right? Uh, so um, uh, my paragraph begins on uh, the bottom of 22, so maybe you're 21. This block of granite, for example, is a mere thing. Ah, it's 22. Look at that. We start out together and then we di diverge. Okay, so this block of granite, for example, is a mere thing. So there we've got, that's there and three, and for the next three pages, we've got a story, a gr particular Greek kind of Roman story about what it is to be a thing. It's a substance with properties. The substantive part of the thing is its thingliness and the properties adhere to it. Maybe you're familiar with this in its sort of medieval incarnation. And furthermore, this substance with properties uh, mirrors the, uh, or rather, the language we have for describing things mirrors the way things are. So the very grammatical structure of our sentences, the subject predicate structure of our sentences, mirrors the ontological structure of things on this view. We have the sentences have subjects with predicates, the things have substances with properties, and there's a kind of mirroring relation between them. Okay. Heidegger is against this characterization of what it is to be a thing, not surprisingly. Um, for one thing, he says, it's just false that the sentence structure mirror, mirrors the thing structure. He says this on my 24. Uh, your 24 also. Actually, the sentence structure does not provide the standard for the pattern of thing structure, nor is the latter simply mirrored in the former. He thinks, he doesn't go into it in much detail, but he thinks um, that both of these are made possible by some more basic thing, some, something more, ba some more basic phenomenon. Uh, both the things which have gotten to be characterized as substances with properties and the sentences which is, have come to be characterized as subjects with predicates. The only reason they can mirror one another is because at some more fundamental level they're actually, they're actually much more closely related to one another. This is related to Heidegger's criticism of the correspondence theory of truth. He thinks that this characterization of what there is and our ways of thinking about what there is um, encourages you to think that truth is a matter of correspondence between, uh, say, sentences or thoughts and the world. And ultimately, he thinks, although that's in some trivial sense correct, it's not a very illuminating account of, of truth. He also thinks that this view leaves out, um, leaves out moods. He says this, I guess, on 25 in the middle of the paragraph, towards the end of the paragraph that begins, once our reliance. He says, perhaps, however, what we call feeling or mood here and in similar instances is more reasonable because more open to being than all that reason which having meanwhile become ratio, the nasty Latin word, uh, was misinterpreted as being rational. Uh, this is his way of saying, look, this view of what we are subjects that can have thoughts that have a subject predicate kind of structure directed towards objects that have a substance property kind of structure gets to be true this our thoughts gets get to be true in virtue of mirroring the things that their thoughts about that whole view 
Um, even if it were right, he thinks it's wrong, but even if it were right, you'd have to criticize it because it doesn't have any important or interesting place for the notion of mood. Mood is very relevant for Heidegger just in the broad picture because moods are receptive. And what he thinks, the reason he thinks we don't have a good understanding of moods and our general discourse leaves moods very much to the side of things is because we don't have a good place for a receptive aspect to our nature. That's why we think of, our, we think of ourselves as controlling resources and as a result we can't experience our understanding of being as given to us. But it is. We do experience it as given to us in moods and this uh, view uh, leaves out any important or interesting role for moods. So we get rid of the Greeks and the Romans. Okay, that's pretty, and the medievals. Um, then we get the empiricist account of what a thing is uh, from pages 25 to 26 as a, unif a unity of a manifold of sensations. And here he gives another um, ca absolutely characteristic kind of criticism. He says, look, this is just bad phenomenology. Uh, it turns out that if you've got to characterize the thingness of a thing in terms of its propensity to give rise in me to sensations, then you've mischaracterized it because when I experience things, I don't first experience sensations. Okay? So he says on 26, your bottom of 25. Now this interpretation of the thingness of the thing is a, as correct and demonstrable in every case as the previous one. This already suffices to cast doubt on its truth. The idea is it doesn't, it doesn't tell us anything interesting and so, and so it's not wrong in any, it's not wrong in any interesting way either. Uh, it's just vacuous. If we consider moreover what we're searching for, the thingly character of the thing, then this thing concept again leaves us at a loss. We never really first perceive a throng of sensations, for example, tones and noises in the appearance of things, as this thing concept alleges. Rather, we hear already meaningful events occurring in the environment, the storm whistling in the chimney, we hear the three-motored plane. We hear the Mercedes in immediate distinction from the Volkswagen. Uh, much closer to us than all sensations are the things themselves. They already, they're already meaningful. And that's the way in the first instance we experience them. And any empiricist account that tries to build up that, ex that meaningful experience of things in terms of meaningless sense sensations or sense data has got to have the story wrong. We hear the door shut in the house and never acoustical sensations or even mere sounds, except in very, very extraordinary sort of laboratory circumstances. In order to hear a bare sound, we have to listen away from things, divert our ear from them, i.e. listen abstractly. Okay, so that empiricist kind of account is a bad account of what it is to be a thing. There's a different account that gets closer and it gets closer because um, it has a role for equipment and that's the traditional Aristotelian account. He talks about this in greater detail um, page, on my pages 30, 26 to 30. Um, and the Aristotelian hylomorphic account is an account according to which um, things uh, have two aspects, but the aspects are essentially unified. There's a hyletic aspect and a morphic aspect. There's a the hule, that's the sort of, so to speak, the matter. And there's the morphe, that's the form. And you never have one without the other. 
You've all, whenever you've got matter, it's always formed in some way. Whenever you've got form, it's always in a matter. Right? And so it's different from the substance with properties view, because the substance is at least conceptually distinct from the properties that inherit it. It's something separate. The hylomorphic view doesn't allow for that separation. Um, and that's uh, interesting. Uh, what's more interesting to Heidegger is that the hylomorphic view allows you to tell a story about the relation between things and equipment. The, the notion of things as formed matter, the Aristotelian notion, as Heidegger says on my top of 27, um, applies equally to things of nature and to use objects. That's, that's a step in the right direction, right? That's a step in the right direction because it allows us to understand what equipment is in terms of what things are and tell some kind of story about the relation between them. It's not going to get it right, but Heidegger has a lot of admiration for Aristotle. In some ways, you can think of Heidegger's personal history as the history of sort of finally divorcing himself from Aristotle. And he's, he's divorced now from, from the guy, but, um, uh, but he still has a lot of respect for him. Okay. The Aristotelian view, although it applies equally to things of nature and use things, applies differently to them. Does anyone remember what the difference in Aristotle's view is between a, a thing and uh, equipment, a use object? Like his examples are typically things like jugs that you use, that the craftsman makes and that you use for a certain end. Any, anyone? It's a, I, yeah, Adam. Has the notion of four causes. Yes, that's right. So exactly, and so the equipment, I guess, has something like a formal cause, right? And a thing needn't have a formal cause. A thing of nature. So you add something onto the thing, an extra kind of ca causal notion that uh, that um, that the thing itself, the mere thing, doesn't have. And so Heidegger says, on this view, there's a relation between equipment, between the jug and a plain old rock. Namely, the plain old rock is like the jug, but it's, it's stripped of its formal cause, stripped, stripped of its use, stripped of its function. Right? And that's a kind of um, interpretation of what things are and what the relation between things and equipment is. Um, Heidegger characterizes this relation on page my page 30, I say. Um, yes. So, in a paragraph that begins, the situation stands revealed. Um, top of 30 for you. The t situation stands revealed as soon as we speak of things in the strict sense of mere things. The mere, after all, means the removal of the character of usefulness and of being made. Now that's another feature of, of equipment that things uh, that natural things don't have for Aristotle. They're not made by a craftsman. Okay, uh, the mere thing is a sort of equipment, albeit equipment denuded of its equipmental being. Thing being what it is to be a a bare thing then consists in what's left over. Um, okay, but there's a problem. This remnant is not, uh, actually identified in terms of its ontological character. So the criticism here, roughly is that just stripping equipment of its equipmentality doesn't tell us what things are. We need, if we want to know what a thing, so roughly speaking, it's sort of interesting, he thinks, that 
Aristotle's got a story about the relation between things and equipment that puts equipment first. That's important, and that's what Heidegger thinks we ought to do. But uh, it doesn't tell us anything interesting about what things are. Okay. Is which the material cost? I guess so, yeah. And Heidegger's concern is that it's characterized simply in terms of the thing that's left when you strip away everything else. So he doesn't give a positive characterization of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. All those are bad characterizations of things. Uh, they're all bad thing concepts, he says. And they're bad because they get in the way of our inquiry into what, well, ultimately into what works of art are. Remember, we want to know what things are because works of art seem to have a thingly element. But all these accounts of what things are are themselves bad accounts. Right? So, we need, so we need to start anew. Okay. But it was worth it to go through that historical story because we got some sense of what's lacking. Namely, we don't understand in any important or interesting sense what the thingly substructure of, the, of a work of art might be. And, of course, Earth is going to go on to play that role. So, he's roughly speaking, I think what he's done here is he's said, look, you thought you might be able to understand a work of art as a thing plus something. Some aesthetic property, say, or something. A, a bare thing plus something. But, as it happens, um, the notions that we've got that are supposed to make sense of what a bare thing is don't don't, they're not successful. They don't, they don't do any work. They don't do the right kind of work. So we see, by going through this history, that really if you're going to understand the thingly element of a work of art, you've got to start over. You've got to try to think about what works of art are in the first place, because you're not going to be able to identify some independently characterizable notion of what a thing is in them and then build on top of that. So that's the rough, that's the sort of rhetorical point of, of that little, um, little detour. So what we have to do is, he says, leave the thing to rest in its own self. Um, and so we're going to try to do that then by thinking about equipment. He says, look, Aristotle got something right. There's something interesting about equipment. Equipment also has a thingly substructure. It's made out of something. And what we need to do is understand th the thingly substructure by understanding what equipment is. Aristotle got that much right. So let's think about equipment. Now we're into the equipment story. I'll just remind you, the story goes, you don't understand equipment until you understand equipment when it's being equipment. It's most being equipment when it's used. What's interesting about it when it's used is that it withdraws. And when it withdraws, it's reliable, right? And that's the important. That's the important fact about um, equipment that it, that it's reliable. Of course, when it withdraws, when it withdraws, you get some notion of its thingly substructure, because the thingly substructure just is what withdraws, right? It's what you no longer have any detailed understanding of, okay? Um, but what's important about it is not uh, how to characterize it positively, but that when it's being most itself, it withdraws. 
Right? This withdrawal structure is the thing that he really finds important because that's what he can characterize reliability, the reliability of equipment in terms of. Okay, let me pause uh, for a moment for, for questions or concerns or any other. Do you, do you feel cheated? Do you think, damn, I, I don't feel like I had to go through that detour? Or why did I work so hard for the first 20 pages? Well, yeah, so how seriously should we take his criticisms of the three kinds of being? Because, I mean, for three enormous conceptions of being, it's what, 25 pages? So, yeah, well, not even that much. I think right. the, criti the critical part is about four pages, yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> would you say it's a, much more useful to take it as a, as a guide to what Heidegger's trying to get at? Yeah, it's standing in for things that he develops in greater detail in other places. Um, so I wouldn't be so worried about um, thinking that he hasn't done all the work he needs to here because... He does go in great detail in other places into why these criticisms are decent criticisms, um, uh, especially the first, especially the first two, the sort of medieval substance with properties view and the um, and the empiricist view. Um, Where does he go? With well, so for in, he goes into both of those in being in time, um, and it's they're they're both tied up with his idea that um, they've got a bad understanding of what, tr of what truth is, and, and in particular a bad understanding of what, uh, what being is also. Uh, so if you want to look in places in being and time, you can look, for instance, in section 44, which is the part where he talks about truth. Uh, and you can look in section 33, 31, 2, and 3, or 30 to 33, where he talks about um, ultimately assertions and what he thinks the right story to tell about assertions is. Um, yeah. Okay. Other big, other big issues that are unclear so far. Okay. Let's try to get on to the big, the big thing. Okay. So. So we, so we know then that we're going, we've gone astray when we do the Van Gogh shoes. So now we got his version of it. So I forgot your name. What's your name? Michael? Okay, My, I think Michael said it very quickly. Uh, so let me say it in a, in a little bit more detail. Um, so, we go through, so we go through the Van Gogh, the, the characterization of the Van Gogh painting. He says, look, we, Aristotle was right to start with equipment, so let's start with equipment. And in particular... Since we're thinking about artwork, let's let's think about you know a painting of, of some equipment. How's that? Will that help? Uh, okay. And what does he think he gets out of it? Well, he thinks that this work of art does something for us. In particular, uh, it shows us something important about what it is to be a pair of shoes. Okay. That's a, and that's, you know, not nothing. That's not nothing. Uh, it's an important thing. And on his analysis, um, in particular, it tells us something about the ontological, I mean, really, the ontological structure of equipment. Because, after all, it shows us that um, the equipment belongs to the earth and is protected in the world of the peasant woman. That's... 
Now we've got these phrases, earth and world. They're playing a particular role in this context. Um, what role are they playing? Well, something like uh, w- what we need to know is that earth and world here are earth and world as experienced by the peasant woman when she's using the shoes. And when she's using the shoes, the earthly feature of the world, uh, I mean, of the shoes, withdraws. That's one of the things that earth can do. And when it's withdrawing, the world is opened up for her in its security. Right? So that means because the shoes are reliable, she can go about her daily business. There aren't questions for her about what needs to be done. The decisions that she makes are decisions that are opened up for her in virtue of the fact that she lives in a community where she's got a background understanding of what one does in various circumstances and she goes about her daily business uh, in a secure way because the equipment is reliable. So we get the first introduction of these notions of earth and world. In this context, earth is something like... um, what you could come to focus on if you were paying attention to the present hand properties of the shoe, its size and its shape and its color and its material and so on and so forth, but what withdraws in the context of the shoes most working as it, most doing the stuff that it, that it needs to do, being equipment. Okay, Earth is, Earth is in this context what withdraws. World is what you can do when all the equipmental stuff is doing is reliable and withdrawing in the way it needs to. Okay, that's kind of an interesting story. It's a story that introduces these notions of earth and world, introduces them in the notion of the uh, in the context of equipment, and helps us understand uh, something about what it is to be equipment. Okay. Does it tell us anything about an artwork? Because that's why we wanted to think about the Van Gogh painting, right? Does it tell us anything about what it is for something to be an artwork? Uh, no, turns out. Why not? Well, because you could have gotten that story by looking at the shoes themselves, right? You could. There's nothing about the artwork. I mean, it's nice painting, tells us something about the shoes, but here on page, now my page 38, a paragraph that begins, we allow to work. So you're 37. Here's Heidegger saying this. We allow to work to tell us what equipment is. He gave us an ontological story about what equipment is. It involves the earth and the world, and opening a world securely against the background of this earth that withdraws. By this, by this means, almost clandestinely, it came to light what is at work in the work. Namely, the disclosure of the particular being in its being, the happening of truth. Okay, so we've gotten the disclosure of a particular being, the peasant's shoes, in its being, as equipment. What it is it for it to be that? If, however, the reality of the work, and, and, you know, maybe that's what artwork does. But, he goes on to say, no, that's not enough. If, however, the reality of the work can be defined solely by means of what is at work in the work, the shoes, in this case, uh, then what about our intention to seek out the real artwork in its reality? As long as we supposed that the reality of the artwork lay primarily in its thingly substructure, we were going astray. And here, I'm not quite sure what he means by thingly substructure, but I think he means um, insofar as we try to characterize an artwork, what it is to be an artwork, 
in terms of its ability to tell us what particular things are. I think that's it's a different notion of thingly substructure here. It's not substance, it's not the hylomorphic characterization, it's not whatever gives sensations to us. It's a different notion of a thingly substructure. It's the artwork as characterized um, in relation to the thing by means of its being something that tells us what things are. Insofar as we did that, we were going astray. Okay, So whatever artworks are, they're not characterizable in terms of their ability to tell us what it is to be a particular thing. I think that's the, I think that's the, um, I think that's the take home message for the end of the first, for, for the first lecture. Whatever artworks are, they're not characterizable in terms of the most sophisticated view that you could get that tries to, char to characterize artworks in terms of their relation to things. And in particular, they're not characterizable as um, what discloses the particular being in its being. And the reason they're not disclosable, they're not characterizable in that way, is that artworks at their origin, the most fundamental kind of an artwork, doesn't just disclose a particular being in its being. It tells us what it is for anything to be anything at all. Okay. It tells us about being, not about a particular being. Yeah. Well, right. It it makes uh, it makes it possible for anything to show up as anything at all. It it opens up a world. Yeah. Exactly. It opens up a world. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'd like to backtrack to the definition that you gave of the earth. And oh, okay. The connection that you made with the present. Good. At hand. Okay. Um, earth is. I think the symbol... The connection with presence at hand. Presence at hand. Okay. Yeah. The concept I struggled the most... Yeah, absolutely. ...is work. And I guess I... Like, I have definite... I've picked out various places where it gives definitions of birth, but I still yeah. see the connection that you... Okay, good. So you're right that there are various places where he talks about Earth. I went and, and gathered them all, too. And what's interesting, of course, is that Earth plays different roles in different contexts. So the role that it's playing here in the context of the peasant shoes is a very simple role. I'll read you the passages. You probably have them also. For The mo most important ones are on thir 34 for me. Uh, yeah, bottom of 33 for you. So this equipment, so the here's one of them. This equipment belongs to the earth and is protected in the world of the peasant woman. From out of this protected belonging, the equipment itself rises to its resting within itself. That's one thing. Uh, it belong, The equipment belongs to the earth. Uh, and further down, uh, he says, let's see, I didn't bring... I think further down he says something more about Earth. By virtue of this reliability, so in the middle of the next paragraph, by virtue of this reliability, so the usefulness uh, it's of the equipment itself rests in the abundance of an essential being of the equipment. We call it reliability. By virtue of this reliability, the peasant woman is made privy to the silent call of the Earth by virtue of the reliability of the equipment, she's sure of her world. 
world and earth exist for her and for those who are with her in her mode of being only in the equipment. Okay, so earth there, you're right. So earth there, um, uh, earth there means, so there's an earthy nature to the equipment, but that's not what exists for her in this context. You're right. What exists for her, I think literally, I'm, I'm so... I'm not sure in this context. This is such a derivative context that I'm not sure. But it may be that in this context, Earth really is just Earth. It's really the fur. It's really the thing that the um, yeah, that can lie fallow in the wintry field and so on. Yeah, because that's what she works with. It's not okay. It's important to bring this up. There are some prominent interpretations of um, the notion of Earth. Um, Earth plays an important role from this point on in Heidegger's, in Heidegger's work. And it may play a different role here than it does in another essay um, that we're going to read called The Thing. The question is what role it plays. And there are some prominent interpretations according to which um, Earth really is just like a call to, be, to live green or, you know, sort of don't wash your vegetables or something. I mean, it, when you're preserving the Earth, what you're doing is, um, you know... Uh, really sort of planting lots of lots of food and, and eating it. And Earth is just nature. It's just the way, it's just the stuff that's out there. And it may well be the stuff that's out there in this context. That's what's opened up for her through the reliability of the equipment. Um, uh, so what I said that was misleading, and I shouldn't have said it, was that it's Earth that withdraws. Earth doesn't withdraw. The equipment withdraws. And the equipment withdraws. When it withdraws, it's reliable. And its, re its reliability is what secures the Earth. That means allows her to work on it. And it may well be that here, Earth just is the field that she works in. Even though, as he says, um, uh, um, the, the clods of dirt aren't present in the picture or whatever. It's clear that, he thinks, um, these are shoes that, that sh you know, belong to someone who works in the earth, and earth here might mean something, might mean something like that. But, it's, but whatever it means here, um, I don't think it's going to be able to mean that when we get to the Greek temple. Um, the so good. So there's the connection is with reliability. So here's the thing that I thought I saw that was crucial. So let me try to say it as clearly as I can. The Van Gogh painting discloses a particular being in its being. That's to say it shows us what it is to be equipment. That's an interesting thing to do, but not the most basic thing that an artwork can do. But... The reason it's interesting and the reason we wanted to go through this detour is that what we learn when we, when we think about equipment is that what it is to be equipment is to be reliable. And the reliability comes from the equipment withdrawing and when it withdraws, it, as he says, um, uh, makes the world and earth exist for her and it, uh, where's the security thing? By virtue of the reliability of the equipment, she is sure of her world and made privy to, this, to the silent call of the earth. So there's a certain kind of security that comes along with this reliability. So what's reliable is the shoes, right? So 
Later, in, when we talk about the Greek temple, something else is going to give that security. It's going to be the earth, the earthly aspect of the work of art. It's the, shel- it's got, it's the sheltering ancient, he says. And what seems to me important and interesting is not the notion of earth that's, that's getting laid out here, because it doesn't seem like a particularly interesting one. What's important and interesting is the notion of where security comes from. Security comes from the reliability of the shoes which you get when they withdraw. Okay? Now, and now, so it's the withdrawal that's going to allow for security, except that when you get to the Greek temple, the withdrawal isn't going to be the kind of withdrawal that you get with the equipment. It's going to be something different, like the sign was different from equipment. It's going to be a kind of operating in the background... something that operates in the background in virtue of the fact that the work of art rises up and shows itself. So that's that's the connection. So you're right to help me clarify. The connection isn't between the role that Earth plays in the story about the shoes and the role that Earth plays in the story about the work of uh, the Greek temple. The connection is between the role that equipment plays in the story about the shoes and the role that Earth place in the work in the work of art, and once again, what's important is that there's this interesting story about when something withdraws, it gives security. Does that help? Yeah, I think you said earlier something about presence at hand. I did. So what withdraws in the case of the equipment is the thingly stuff. So that, but 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 what's not right is to identify the thingly stuff with the earth. And I may have said something that, that made, it mis- made it seem misleading. Right? But what withdraws is the material that the shoes are made out of. All of the present at hand properties that you could come to understand the shoes to have. They're, they're, the stuff they're made out of, the shape they have, and so, how much they weigh, and so on. All that stuff is withdrawn when the shoes are most being their shoes. Most being the way they are. Right? So, and that... Yeah. Okay. Good. Someone's unhappy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> quick cap. So the puzzling phrase, the world worlds. Well, I can tell you why he says it. Yeah, I can tell you why he says it. Um, the more natural thing to say would be that the world is. There is a world. Um, but you can't say that because worlds are that in virtue of which anything is intelligible as what it is. And so to, uh, to say the world is, is to make it seem like an entity. Right? And he doesn't want to make, he, he, because he wants to hew to the ontological difference, worlds and things that are at the level of being, um, you can't identify as things that are. Because uh, what is are just entities, and they're not entities. They play this different role. So he's forced to give to find some new word. He can't say that there is a world, he has to say something else. And he makes up this he makes up this this terminology, the world worlds. What it means for the world to world is for um, a certain set of practices and background understanding of what it is to be manifest in a culture uh, in virtue of which everyone in the culture understands what it is for anything to be what it is. That's what it is for a world-to-world. Uh, 
He also says something, sometimes um, uh, a world is opened up. Uh, that a work of art can open up a world. That's to say a work of art can make it clear to the people who are living in its light that there's a whole new set of possibilities for existence, a whole new set of ways for them to be. This happens maybe um, in originating, what he calls originating works of art. At the very end, he talks about how, world, how works of art, how art can um, open a new beginning. I take it that's something that happens when you get a, a revolutionary work of art in virtue of which a whole new way of understanding anything comes into being. Maybe, um, maybe the martyrdom of Christ, or maybe some, you know, some, something very, very fundamental like that. Uh, well, so works of art cannot work. The Greek temple is a work of art, and what it is for it not to work is that it's not opening up a world. Yeah. Um, worlds, uh, you can talk about a world, you can talk about the world that, yeah, I suppose you could say that, the world that was opened up by the Greek work of, by the Greek temple, but that's no longer worlding. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah. Any last questions? Yes. I guess I'm just a little bit unsure what the relationship between earth and then physical or material practicity is. Good. Okay. So we we haven't said yet. So far, the only characterization of earth that we've got is um, the one that Celine was pointing out in the you know t when you till the earth. Uh, we know some things about earth. This is what we'll try to talk about next time. We know some things about Earth uh, when it's involved in the struggle between Earth and world in the Greek temple. It rises up as self-closing. That's one of the things he says about it. That's, we need to make sense of that. We need to say what that is. But it has something to do with the fact that it's the feature of the work of art in virtue of which uh, we get this background understanding of what we're up to an understanding that withdraws from notice for us. And we get it in virtue of the work of art rising up and showing us something about what it is to be anything. I'm going to try to give examples of that. I'll just to give you a, a teaser. I think Marilyn Monroe might be an example of that. Or Paul Newman, uh, something like that. So works of art, are, uh, especially the Greek temple, are closely tied up with gods. I think it's not... Um, an accident that he talks about the relation between the temple and the gods. Um, gods are real people who shine and show us what it is to be whatever it is we're up to in a particular culture. They, sh they sort of, they stand out and in their standing out they give us a background sense of what seems appropriate. Uh, but we'll try, to, we'll try to work that out in detail next time. Okay, so we will continue with the origin of the work of art next time. I'll try to finish it up next time so we can move on to the question concerning technology.